Welcome to part one of our two-part special series on global marketing trends. This mini-series is based on a massive annual study Deloitte designs and publishes. And today, for this special episode of the CMO Podcast, I will be delving into the findings of Deloitte's Global Marketing Trends Report. This episode focuses on the shifting talent landscape in marketing. Deloitte urges leaders to build what they call an intelligent creative engine. By that we mean leveraging unconventional talent strategies to help better connect marketing to improving customers' lives. And you know how much I love that. First, I'm joined by my friend, Jennifer Veenstra. She's the executive leader of Deloitte's global CMO program. Jen is all about advancing CMO leadership, and she has a special focus on the customer experience, winning strategies, and of course, digital transformation. Jen has led the enormous effort behind Deloitte's Global Marketing Trends Report, so it's only fitting that we begin this discussion about the report and its implications for you with Deloitte's Jen Veenstra. Jen, good to see you again. Welcome to this special episode of the CMO Podcast. Let's start with how in the world did you find the time, the capacity, and the energy to lead this huge global marketing trend study? You know, we set out originally to create the global marketing trends um, because we felt like we needed to um, really understand what our high growth companies doing that others can learn from. And so we really wanted to make sure that it was research-based, that we were talking to those companies that were doing it right, and that we also were touching base with consumers and understanding what are consumers looking for so that we can help provide some information to marketers to really help them figure out what should they be paying attention to how can they connect better with their customers? So that's why we did it. And we think it's extremely important. Um, and so it rose to the top of the priority list. Can you tell us a bit, going a little bit deeper into what you've just been talking about, a little bit more how you do it? It's a massive study. Right? You've talked to over 1,000 executives, most of them C-level, over 10,000 consumers. So it has a massive scope. And how do you even begin to take on that task? How do you start? I mean, how do you design it? So a little bit of insights and kind of the how behind this important, huge study. The first thing we did was we, we went to our global leaders. And these are the people that are day-to-day working with our clients across the, the globe to help them be better marketers. Right. And so and we said, what are the key things? We ha- we actually held a workshop um, and maybe, you know, in, in Deloitte, we call them labs. Uh, mm-hmm. And we got together and we said, what are those what are those key things? And we did some exploring. And it was really important for us to sort of get it all out on the table and then start picking through sort of what what are the key things um, that that are common across um, what our clients are dealing with. And so really getting all of those leaders together at once to get to that high level. And then the, the because this is a global study, it was extremely important for us to get with our global firms to understand the nuances at the local geographies and really do some interviews uh, with their clients um, and make sure that it's not just U.S. based um, because mm-hmm. I'm I'm in the U.S. Most of my team is in the U.S. So it's really important that that we enlist the help of our global colleagues so that um, so that we have that global perspective uh, and we got them excited about it. Um, it's the the marketing trends is a way for our people to really help their clients and they see that and so they want to be involved in it uh so you'll notice that many of our trends we have seven trends and many of them are really led by a global team got it now you talked about why you do this study i'd like you to talk a bit about how this study is unique and important 
to the larger business and marketing world. So if you had to do an elevator pitch with someone about why this is very special and why you keep doing it, what would you say? I think number one is research-based. And so we talk to um, global executives. Uh, and then we also, we, we talk to consumers. And I think that that's really important to understand um, what are customers looking for? Um, what are the assumptions that we're making about customer needs? And how, how are those actually incorrect? Or are we validating those? Mm-hmm. So, you know, extremely research-based. We like to sort of look forward and, and not just sort of what are we dealing with today, but what should, what should you have on the horizon and what are the things that you should be thinking about that are out there that, that, that you might not to be, need to be dealing with today, but should be in the back of your mind, right? You should start preparing. The other thing that we do is we coordinate with our other groups that, that are looking at trends. So we have a tech trends. Um, and so we're looking, if we're looking at data privacy, how, how are the technology folks thinking about data privacy versus marketing and how can they work together? Very important. If we're looking at the organization and talent, um, we're coordinating with our, we call it the human capital trends, which is really, you know, a- aimed at our CHROs and understanding sort of the talent perspective and what's the future of work. And we bring that into then how does that apply to the marketing organization? So trying to coordinate across the C-suite. So you tap into your Deloitte experts in these various areas, which I think is terrific. Yeah. And I think because Deloitte has such a broad reach, we're able to really understand the other aspects of the C-suite. And so we can help marketers with their agendas vis-a-vis the other C-suite members as well. You've boiled this massive study and pulled seven trends out of the data. How do you do that? I mean, we're all faced with a lot of data, and it's important as leaders to synthesize that and to summarize it and to act on it. And so you've just done that with all this data. How did you synthesize it into these seven trends that you so clearly and beautifully, you know, illustrate? in the in the summary of the study the challenge um, is to start with hypotheses but also not be so clear that we have sort of confirmation bias right Mm -hmm. um and so we looking at trends without hypotheses or looking at the data without hypotheses is um sort of you're not going to get anything because there's too much, right? And so there's so many possibilities. So you need to start with the hypotheses in a way that that allows you to shift or be surprised by the data and what it's telling you and be okay with your hypotheses being um, not being correct. <laughs> but uh, but you need to start from that 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 vantage point. And then what's the data? that is going to either prove or disprove those hypotheses. Um, We create the hypotheses based on our experience. Um, We're a global firm. We have people that work with with, um, thousands of clients every day. Um, And so we create those hypotheses through that experience and through those conversations. And then we look at the data to to prove or disprove. And um, we don't see it as a failure if we are disproving our hypothesis. Jen, any lessons for leaders listening on how to leverage the insights in this study within their own organizations? Yeah, the key thing is how, how do you make this actually happen, right? You look at these seven trends, they can, they can be a bit at a high level. Yeah, purpose is important. What do I do? Um, I think it's really important to, to look at the organizational changes you need to make in order to make these things happen, because you can't just have a mandate and think it's going to work without adjusting your organization and your processes and hiring the right people or or sort of adjusting the skill sets that you have within the organization to make it happen. An example might be um, the intelligent creative engine. And, and we talk about within within that trend, we talk about sort of marrying the analytics and the storytelling or the creative side and being able to look at the data and respond very quickly 
to provide a story or connection point with the customers in a very agile way. And that takes work. Uh, And so, you know, understanding what needs to happen and then breaking it down because you can't, it's not going to, you're not going to make that adjustment in a month or even in six months, but, you know, figuring out how do you phase that in um, and what's your long-term goal and how are you going to make those short-term steps towards it? Jen, that's a good place to end. How to maximize the learnings within your organization is to think about, are you set up organizationally to act on these seven trends? And of course, which one or two are most meaningful to your company at this point in their evolution? So thank you for giving us the introduction to the study and good to see you again, Jen. Great to see you, Jim. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. It's incredible to see just how much work Deloitte put into this report and the many voices that collaborated, from authors and researchers to C-suite executives, many of whom contributed their personal perspectives. Marketing was once largely considered a field for creatives and ad people. You remember Mad Men. But the rise of big data and artificial intelligence has changed the discipline of marketing forever. Now, marketers can uncover the most nuanced insights about their customers and connect products, services, and brand messages to moments in their daily lives. The best companies are hiring marketers with deeper analytical skills, a more collaborative mindset, and skills in leading agile teams, which often include influencers. And all of this is happening in the context of remote work as a new reality for many. To get a better understanding of how all this works for organizations, I sat down with Livia Zuferli in Toronto. She is one of the authors of the report section on talent, dubbed Building the Intelligent Creative Engine. Livia is a senior marketing executive with more than 20 years of experience in retail and consumer goods, including time as Target's head of marketing in Canada. A leader in Deloitte's customer and marketing practice, Livia's areas of focus include brand strategy, integrated marketing planning, communication strategy, advertising, and creative content development. But make no mistake, this isn't about swapping people with creative skills for analytical and technical skills. Instead, it's about convening data scientists, strategists, programmers, and creatives together to make the whole greater than the sum of its parts, which isn't always the easiest or most straightforward endeavor. Welcome, Livia, coming to us from the great city of Toronto today. So I want to start with a big question about this section of the Global Marketing Trends Report building the intelligent creative engine. You've contributed to this. You've been a writer and a researcher in this. So I'd like you to start with what were what was something that you took away from this as a leader? Some personal takeaway for you, something you learned in going through this process. You know what? It's um it's so interesting. So at Deloitte, you know, we we do a lot of work in the marketing space and I would say to you in the past year or two, the single greatest sort of question we tend to get now from CMOs is, how do I structure my team? What should my team look like? How do I build and optimize, you know, my team for the future, our marketing vision? And so these kind of questions about talent and an operating model are becoming much and much um, more, I would say, frequent and pervasive in in the marketing industry. And so what I found was interesting was just a reconfirmation of the fact that this is so top of mind for for CMOs of large and small organizations. And I think if you would have taken it back, you know, three, four years ago, the preoccupation was around more, I need more analytical talent. I need to get my data scientists on board. I need to drive up my performance marketing and those sorts of things. I am now, you know, increasingly hearing more about, okay, but I can't lose my creativity. I can't lose, you know, that special something, that special sauce around my brand and how we communicate a message to consumers or to our target audiences. And and have we pivoted or gone too far ditch to ditch in terms of building out for analytics at the expense of some of that creative engine, as we call it. And so I think it's just, you know, recognizing it's, it's really a universal challenge, but some marketers are really trying to take stock again of, do I have the right balance? 
And, you know, it's, it's just a fascinating time, I think, to be a CMO and a marketer in general. Why do you think that's going on now, Livia? Why is, did, did, did the pendulum just swing too far and we're bringing it back? Or is there something about the last two years with people working remote, getting to know their team sometimes better than they did before? Is there something that's gone on that has been the catalyst for that? You know, I think there's been a few things. I think from a, a team standpoint, and, and you're right, you know, this move to a virtual environment, not having maybe as much of a that connected, um, you know, sort of interactions with your teams and your talent per se, you want to ensure that you, you can't always be there as an executive or as a leader to drive that motivation forward. You want to ensure your teams are internally motivated. And typically, they're internally motivated if they're doing work that they love and that they feel they're passionate about and what have you, right? So I think that this this broader trend of just talent reevaluating what, you know, what sparks joy in them, what makes them happy and, and trying to sort of fit an organizational construct around the individuals and their strengths. So I think, I think there's a lot of dynamics at play there. I think from a brand and creativity and communications and messaging standpoint, I think consumers have changed, right, in the last two years. I think that coming out of the gate, I, I know we were working with some brands right at the beginning of COVID, and a lot of our clients and brands were were almost paralyzed. Like, how could we even communicate or talk during this time? This is a terrible time for humanity and, and for the world. And how do we sell our products or talk about our offer, you know, services and offerings and what have you in a way that's that's still appropriate? And I think that that connection to striking a human balance and being authentic and really trying to be a brand that not just stands for something from a purpose standpoint, but is empathetic to what's happening with their consumers in the world, right? Like that becomes so important. Data can take you there to a certain extent, obviously, but still those sort of intangibles of creativity, of, of brand understanding and, you know, all of that, I think, just became just came more to the forefront. And the importance of that as a differentiator for brands, I think, was heightened in the last two years. That's been my observation. But, um, but you know, know, not to say one's better than the other. It's just by swinging too much to just a commoditized performance-based marketing culture, at some point, everybody can have the same tools and the same potential algorithms. And you know what I mean? Like there's really what is that differentiation at the end of the day is how you're connecting with your consumer and your audience. And, and a lot of that, I, th I think, comes down to these creative skill sets. You titled this section of the report, Building an Intelligent Creative Engine. Kind of you know, pretty big and heavy words and interesting words. So I'd like you to describe this choice of words. Why are, why are you calling this trend, Building an Intelligent Creative Engine? So let's start with that. Absolutely. So let's let's start with the concept of engine, because I think, you know, again, what we're seeing is the marketing function is not just a brand stewardship or, you know, communication function anymore or not. You know, I would say traditionally back in the day, maybe that was the primary role mm -hmm. of, of the function. Increasingly, marketers, CMOs, marketing teams are being viewed as whether it be the revenue generators, you know, of the organization, whether it be innovation drivers or the holder of, you know, customer and consumer insights. And so this notion of choosing the word engine, I think, is very important to say the marketing function is driving the growth or the, you know, the momentum of a company or an organization forward. Like that's something to be celebrated. And I think there's increasing respect for the many hats that a CMO plays these days and, and, you know, marketing functions. So this notion of engine is about propelling growth and propelling innovation within companies. And then of course saying, you know, striking that right balance of the creativity side of it, you know, and an intelligent engine is how do you bring the skill sets together in a way that, um, are getting the best of both worlds. So you're not just defaulting to one side of the spectrum. So can that be through mixed teams, multidisciplinary teams or pods, right? Like bringing together creativity and, and data science together. And, you know, the, that's one construct we see happening a lot at our clients. But, um, but that was the sort of thinking is, is how do you get the right talent with this myriad of cross-functional skill sets together to drive a brand forward and drive growth forward? What do you think are the biggest obstacles in doing that within organizations today? Oh, today, I would say, um, sadly, and I think, well, I think a lot of organizations are feeling this is, is honestly retaining talent. I mean, I, um, you know, I know everybody's had sort of a point of view on this and it's, it's been a topic as of late, you know, since we're kind of coming out of, 
of COVID, hopefully. But it's it's really difficult because I think a lot of teams are we're, everybody's trying to get the best and the brightest and the most creative and you know that sort of thing. But but retaining that talent within an organization, I think, can be tough. And and that's where I think it does come back to again, you know, that authenticity of a brand showing up, you know, showing up as a brand for your people as well and your talent mm-hmm. as well. You know, we always think about marketing to the consumer and marketing to other audiences or the B2B side or what have you. But it's about like how we view our employees as really that extension of the brand and how do you keep them believing, you know, in what and what your organization does and your purpose and what have you. So I think that that's, that's something that organizations are struggling with. Those leaders who do that well, and I won't ask you to call out any, but I would, I would like to hear, what do you think they do mm-hmm. to keep their people, keep them motivated, keep them inspired, keep them with the organization, feel appreciated, feel like they're adding value? Yeah. What, what do you observe leaders who do that well do? I think most importantly, they kind of make time and space for their people and they listen. You know, they actually um, just come back, coming back to this whole notion of humanity. I know folks have large teams and, you know, it can be difficult to make enough time in a day as a leader to to accomplish this. But I personally have found that having even a 15, 20 minute conversation, even three skip levels down or what, you know, however the hierarchy of the organization works, but listening to your people as a leader, but then understanding, you know, nobody wants to be a cog in a machine, right? So there's obviously organizational marketing objectives that need to be fulfilled for the, you know, company to be profitable and sustainable. But similarly, these individuals and the talent and 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 even, you know, 20-year-olds coming out of school, they have so much ambition about their own personal growth and development. So actively managing within a, within that frame of okay, we are here to support the company, but we're also here to grow great people and to help give them space to find out back to what I said before, what strengthens, what, what excites them, right? What, what sparks Mm -hmm. joy with these individuals, but give them space to, to sort of develop and grow laterally or in a way that's, that's motivating for them. Collaboration is such an important mindset and skill. And you talk Mm -hmm. about this in the report and I found something very interesting in the report is collaborations valued very highly by senior executives, a bit lower by CMOs, Mm -hmm. which I think is pretty weird and a little bit scary. Yes. So I guess any thoughts on why that is? And maybe the more important question is, how can we shift that? Yeah, I'll be honest with you. That one surprised me, that result, because having been a CMO in the past, I thought, no, we're, you know, we're some of the best collaborators yeah. because think about to, to be a CMO or a marketer, you have to rely on other parts of the organization. Particularly, you know, I've lived a lot in retail where it's, you know, the operations team, your, your merchandising team, everybody's working together to, to fulfill a customer experience. Um, so that one surprised me. I think maybe, and this is my belief, and I, I would have to dig into the data a bit more, is that it was not the most pressing need at the time for the CMOs because other things like this management of, you know, this great changing talent structure that's happening and and sort of this leveling up required to to kind of be key business contributors, like other preoccupations maybe were top of mind versus maybe this collaboration skill set, which I do feel that most marketers think we excel at. So I, I was surprised by it. I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt that, you know, marketers do see the value in it. Mm-hmm. And it's maybe just other pressing priorities that rose to the list. Working in an agile way, working in agile team structures, agile processes is a big finding in the report. I'm sure no surprise, almost everyone mm-hmm. I know is either well into this or, or, or getting experience. So I'd like you to talk a bit about, for those who haven't explored the concept, mm-hmm. why should they get on this right away, if that is your belief? Mm-hmm. You know, it's very topical because we are working right now on a massive agile marketing project. And it's tough. You know, the transition from a more traditional marketing waterfall-based approach where you have a linear campaign or a, or a annual marketing plan and you pivot and what have you, uh, maybe quarterly, you know, that's a, it's a big change to move to these the sprint-based model and, and being a little bit more focused on um, outcomes with this cross-functional team. And so I think it's... So I don't want to say everybody should do it. It's easy. Like, it really requires a lot of um, focus and taking your team along and change management, as we said. 
But the outcomes that we've seen are they're so significant. So for a few reasons, the more I would say more than ever, right? Consumers, the market, everybody, everything is changing at such a, a fast pace, right? That like this notion of even quarterly planning or or what have you is becoming really difficult to execute in reality. And so this ability to adapt agility as just a sensibility you know, just a mindset is, I think, more important because that's how the world is working, right? And so I think it just, it creates some resilience within the teams in general. But also this ability to bring folks together, to rally as a team, to solve for outcomes together, obviously efficient because you're utilizing resources and your talent in a, in a way that's most effective. But you're also prioritizing the most important things that an organization needs to get done, right? It's not busy work. It's not incrementality for the sake of it. It's really about what are the core outcomes we want to achieve and and that sort of holistic uniform team that's trying to execute against those those core outcomes as opposed to these siloed maybe campaigns or siloed initiatives that would have happened um, prior in more traditional models. So we see the benefits through just tangible business benefits through prioritization, efficiency. But to be honest, we've also seen such great, you know, employee satisfaction increases or improvements as a result of moving to these more agile pods or ways of working because Folks are, are working within a construct, but can kind of push and, you know, maybe develop skills a little bit more laterally or take a little bit more initiative and ownership. And, and, and it's just you see the empowerment that hopefully leads to these things like greater employee satisfaction and hopefully retention, as we were talking about at the, uh, at the top of being one of the key issues right now for marketers. So what's the biggest shift that senior leaders need to make when they go down this process of agile working? Is it different? It's different work, right? It's different questions people need to ask. It's valuing different things. So what have you seen as the biggest behavioral change that's helpful from the C-suite when, when, when the company is going down a, a, a road of working in an agile way? Well, I think what's, you know, what we've spent time doing is spending time with the C-suite leaders to help educate them on agile, right? Like Because some, some of these leaders may not have worked in this capacity before or would have come from more traditional models. So we do spend time up front really planning and and um, taking taking those leaders through what are the applications and what would this mean and, and trying to get them ready because ultimately, as I said, the change management piece will be huge for their team. Um, I think though what what we do experience is it's it's a it's an uncomfortable period of change because you have folks on the team maybe they're junior maybe they're manager level different levels who've been used to a certain role you know or a certain set of decision making authority or maybe hierarchy and when you move into this sort of more team based model it's very different right the the decision power um the individuality maybe is changed a little bit because you're making decisions as a team and so it's really equipping I think the our C-suite and leaders to anticipate what some of these, you know, mm -hmm. barriers might be and have and and prep them with, okay, these are the considerations, this is the narrative, like the communications to share with the team, like providing all of that so that the C the C-suite or, or CMO can feel confident, right? That okay, we're going to get through this journey and it's going to be maybe a, a transition, but at the end of the day, these are the benefits we're going to have out of this. So it's it's a bit of it's comms, it's change management, it's a bit of education, I think, that that really boils down in the beginning and planning, because you can't mm -hmm. just say, OK, tomorrow we're starting agile like there's there's fair planning. Another part of this report highlighted the use of influencers, which is not a new idea, mm -hmm. but it seems like in the report you're seeing companies on leveraging, using, working with influencers in a different way, more embedding them, yes. more bringing them sort of inside. I mean, that can be risky, right? If you don't have the right influencer, it Absolutely. looks like a shill. It doesn't look authentic. It doesn't look real. You lose trust. So what have you learned through this report and through your experience about bringing influencers into your brand and your brand strategy and your brand messaging mm -hmm. in the right way? First of all, vetting is so important, but you know, beyond the <laughs> yeah. obvious, which has yeah. always been the case, clearly. I think, to be honest, the brands that do it the best or have the best outcomes are brands that have a very crystallized point of view of who they are, what they stand for. So not, you know, beyond obviously brand guidelines and what have you, but are very well um, 
articulated set of brand values, right? Of brand um, beliefs so that when the influencers are out there and you're, you're providing more autonomy to help tell the story of your brand and more creative autonomy um, and communication autonomy, that that you know at least you've provided that, you know, the the guideline, the not the guardrails, because I don't want to say it's limiting, but in some ways it's you want to trust that is well understood what is important to your brand and what particularly from a value standpoint, I think is so important because folks will forgive maybe some, you know, bad creative here or there, or maybe some executions that don't um, go as planned, but consumers won't forget if there is a, um, a disconnect in the values of that influencer or that they're espousing and what they believe the brand stood for, right? That they're, that's, I think, the greatest risk intention. So I think for brands that are going to do it, there, there really needs to be that confidence that the brand can, can provide that, um, that sort of level, level set, right? For the influencers, but also have mechanisms in place. Like I'm not, you know, some governance and mechanisms to ensure like, okay, maybe you're, you're pivoting and course correcting as you're working with some of these influencers and they're, they're embedding in your brand and creating different, um, communications or, or experiences for you. You, you need to be able to sort of, at least in the early days, manage that so that you can pivot quickly if you feel like something's not, you know, not working as you were intending. But I think the most, it just boils down to authenticity. So if you're, if you're going for an influencer just because they have a lot of followers and the brand isn't connected to that influencer in a meaningful way or in a, in a way that a consumer would expect, then that's, you know, that's not the right thing either. I think it's really about understanding as a brand who, who you stand for, what you stand for and getting folks out there, even maybe micro influencers that, that have those same values and, and speak to people in a way that you think is appropriate for your brand. Do you think this is another example of a trend where consumers have changed over the last, call it 18 months, two years, and they have much lower tolerance for brands being yes. off on this? Yes, absolutely. You know, the, all the social, social issues and um, political issues we've been seeing, obviously, more you know, exacerbated over the last two years you know, tensions are very high and consumers, whereas I, I would say probably before would have maybe, maybe a little bit, a little bit more patient with something uh, being amiss or a mistake a brand has made. That's not the case anymore. I mean, it, it really is. It takes, we say this all the time. It takes maybe years for a brand to build trust and it could, you know, evaporate in one bad Insta post or TikTok <laughs> video, right? Like it really is risky in that way. Um, and I think that, again, it just, it, a lot of brands, you know, it's, it's funny. I've been talking to folks and, and different companies and different sectors. And, and the big question as I would say brands, and I'd be curious if you've heard this too, is like, I don't know how to show up in some of these discussions. You know, I don't know what I should be saying, um, about Black Lives Matter or other, you know, other movements that we've seen over the last two years gain traction. And, and they're, they're really questioning that. And, and, you know, the advice is always, if you don't know what to say, don't, don't quickly just say something because that's greater risk. Right. But you need to then look deep, deep down, not into just the marketing department, but like the values of your company and your brand. And like, it, it needs to be a meaningful, real response and or position because everybody will see through it otherwise. Right. It's just, I think that, I think the world generally yeah. after getting beaten up in the last two years and what's happening, um, right now in the world, like people are craving humanity, you know, authenticity and just people doing good. Like, and I don't mean doing yeah. good by like everybody becoming, you know, uh, a not-for-profit enterprise, of course, but just, just doing the right thing for whether it be consumers, but also employees or partners or just like their communities around them. I think, I think, I don't think that's too much to ask to, that every brand should have a story about doing good in that capacity. No, I think you nailed it, Livia. I think, and the only thing I would add to that is, uh, go to your employees, mm -hmm. ask them, bring them into the decision making. Uh, they Absolutely. they care a lot. They will have different perspectives. Most companies have affinity groups, and and just bring them in exactly. and value what they say and be honest with them about your response. But I agree with you. The tolerance for not caring about what's going on in the world and in our communities is over. Yeah. And they expect brands to step up and have a role that's right for that brand and that company and the category that they are in.
Mm-hmm. Exactly. Last question. One piece of advice from you to close this discussion from all you learned in working on this section of the report. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a big one. Okay. One piece of advice is for an executive, for, you know, whether it be the CMO level, director level, or what have you, recruiting, talent management, you know, employee engagement, that is an everyday, day-to-day activity, right? It is not um, something that you put in for your quarterly reviews, your mid-year reviews. Like, honestly, I would say in my day-to-day now, I probably spent half my day on those topics. And I don't see those as administrative or burdensome or like, oh, I have to, you know, do this. I see that as my job as a senior leader now to build this team of amazing people, keep them, you know, keep them motivated and they continue to do great work for our clients and, you know, for um, our society too, because we do a lot of that. But ultimately it's just seeing this as such a critical as you get to do this, like as an executive, you get to build talent and 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 build a great team, you know, and it's it's just not just to reframe, I guess, the perception of it, because it, it can be hard. It can be difficult. No, Olivia, spot on. It's a beautiful way to end this discussion. And I could not agree with you more. Thank you, Olivia, for being awesome. so honest with us and, and, and to be so smart and intelligent oh. and, and kind and generous with your thoughts. My goodness, you just made my day. Thank you, Jim. It's so great to see you again. Here is one amazing factoid. Deloitte surveyed 556 global CMOs. That is 300 more than we've had on this podcast. They asked them to identify the top skills of their highest performers. That's a good question. And get this analytical expertise edged out creative skills in almost every industry. So, after talking with Livia... I wanted to talk with a CMO who was finding success with the strategies that Livia so eloquently talked about. So I invited Laura Curtis Ferreira, the global CMO at Scotiabank, to talk about her talent strategies and her key learning. Scotiabank is the third largest financial services company in Canada. It's a big company, and Laura has been there seven years, about 20 months as CMO. Welcome, Laura, to the CMO Podcast. Now, you've been in financial services a long time, but you have been CMO at Scotiabank for about 20 months. Can you take us through the journey you've been on to evolve your marketing organization to build, as Deloitte says in their Global Trends Report, the intelligent creative engine? Big words. So could you wax on that a bit, Laura, about your journey with your organization and how you are trying to build this intelligent creative engine, which is really all about talent working to their potential. The journey at Scotiabank, and I have to say, I chose Scotiabank. I literally cold called Scotiabank uh, over seven years ago because there was no bank I wanted to work for more than Scotiabank. And, um, And the reason I think that's relevant is because there was something that I felt was quite special about the organization that was very tangible. And um, it drew me in and made me want to uh, offer my services and see if I could come be additive to their culture. And so, um, and that feeling, the, the, the feeling that it was a very approachable, friendly, optimistic, knowledgeable, confident organization that um, really um, lived and breathed the tagline, you're richer than you think, like that, that's real. That's how Scotiabank rolls. They really are an organization that um, operates that way and believes those things. And so the reason I mentioned that is because while the, the, the way we built the marketing organization has dramatically changed, what hasn't changed is the fact that we are all centered around what's best for the customer and the client. And so um, every single day, and, 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 and this, is not, this is not just words, I, I believe this in my core, we ask ourselves questions like, will that help our customer become better off? Will that help their communities be better off? 
will that help the society that we would want to live in be realized? Like we actually ask ourselves those questions and it's not just in marketing. It's throughout the organization. So I, I only give that preamble because while mechanically the marketing org has changed, what made Scotiabank the place I wanted to come to and why I'm able to get such great talent is because of, I, I mean, brand personality is just such a terrible way of referring to it. But if you were going to think of it uh, anthropomorphically, mm. it's, it's, it's an organization that would sit down at the kitchen table and talk to you directly eye to eye versus standing up and staring down at you and telling you how it's going to go. Like, that's how I would think about it. So I just wanted to start there. No, and it's then great maybe context. I can, answer, I can a- answer the question you actually asked. No, no, it's great content. And to tell, take us back. This is very interesting. Take us back there for a moment. You cold called them mm-hmm. because of the culture and the kind of organization you felt it to be. Tell us more about that. There were, there were two things. One, I really did think that you're richer than you think. And having an organization that believed um, that your life could be, was more than just about money, that you're, that, that sort of uh, the richness associated with your life. I, I, I love that. I love that optimism. I just, I always did. Um, so as a marketer, I was a fan of that. As a, as a banking customer, I was a fan of that. Great so, story. And you've been there seven years, 20, mm-hmm. 20 months as CMO. Mm-hmm. So tell us a bit more about this journey you were on. I mean, it sounds like the organization was already amazing when you joined seven years ago. But tell us the journey you've been on since CMO about the organization and its continued development. We're in very dynamic times, of course. Mm-hmm. And what is it about this this work that is so uh, moving, remarkable for you? Because I can tell how you're talking about it, that it's something that's that's very, very foundational for you. We, uh, we talked to Canadians starting in 2019, and we said, um, what would it mean to be a customer first bank? Like, actually, what would that mean in, in your day-to-day? What would that mean for you? And, uh, we, the, and Canadians across the country said, said the same three things. We want you to know us as individuals, advise us with distinction, and value us for our business. Know me, advise me, value me. And like, it doesn't matter where they live. They all say some version of know me, value me, advise me. And when we, when we realized that that was the sort of, that was what was meaningful, we then said, well, is anyone doing that? Is anyone actually saying that to you that will know you better value and, and delivering that? And the answer was there was no one that we could sort of look around to say, yep, there it is. That's a white space somebody else has. And because our brand personality is optimistic and knowledgeable and approachable and friendly and confident, our brand personality really meshed well with um, delivering on know me, value me, advise me. And when we asked Canadians, 75% of them said, Scotiabank would be super believable to be delivering that. And so we spent from 2019 to essentially today um, developing and unveiling something called Advice Plus, which is is the platform that underpins the promise or enables the promise, if you will. So that's the big pivot. What's been the impact of that pivot internally at Scotiabank with your employees, your associates? Uh, I would say especially to people who are on the front lines. So those would be people in the bank branches, in the contact center, um, mobile advisors. These are people who interact day to day, giving advice plus, if you will. They, they, they will tell you that this work is, is, uh, reflects how they feel about what they do. You know, there's, there's this um, feeling that to help others be better off is actually, it's quite noble. And so if you feel like the, the messages and market reflect the value you bring to your customers, 
that feels wonderful. If what you see on TV is commercials pushing product, which is staring at our navel, bank and banking, you don't feel like your role in helping your customers be better off is acknowledged. So I think I think that moving to talking about life and living based on customer needs, which is all about that regenerative approach to marketing, giving back as opposed to taking. Um, I think they I think they feel really good about it. Laura, I want to go back to talking about your organization a bit more. The, the, the study that Deloitte did on global marketing trends found five big future-facing principles in organizational design, structure, and behaviors. First one was deeper analytical capabilities. Second one was more collaborative skills. Third one was skills in working in an agile work environment. Fourth one was creative ways to bring influencers into your teams. And the fifth one was leveraging remote working as a strength. So when you think about those five principles that are obviously garnered from thousands of interviews with all kinds of different companies and categories, which of those principles stands out to you, Laura, as the most relevant in this amazing organizational journey you're on at Scotiabank? More analytical skills. If a young student came to me today and said, I want to be uh, hired the day after I come out of school, I'd say, terrific. Let me tell you a couple degrees that would, would get you hired right out of school. I don't think we can hire enough people with deep analytical skills and not just any old analytical skills, uh, you know, marketing scientists. It's um, specialties upon specialties. So you can't just have deep analytical skills and not know anything about marketing science and um, media science. Like you kind of got to find these unicorns that, you know, maybe, maybe have grown up in uh, packaged goods companies, you know, um, that can come in and really help us set up multi-touch attribution, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in campaign optimization, where we're not waiting to see how things are performing, I would say that's the number one. I can't have enough people. We have a brand value scorecard that is at the all bank level that is live data where I can see customer experience, employee uh, experience, and brand health live tracking so I can see without bias exactly how Scotiabank is doing at any given moment. Imagine the analytical power that is required to put together a scorecard at an all-bank level with something like 70 different uh, data sources coming in. Of those five principles from the report, you talked about deeper analytical capabilities as being the most important for you. Which of those five do you find most challenging to operationalize? You know, collaboration skills, skills in working in an agile environment, creative ways to bring influencers in, remote working or analytical skills. Which of those is hardest? Remote working. Say more. Remote working. Yeah. Um, I have a theory. And so this is a, this is a theory, but I'll, but I'll share it. Um, Accenture said, there was a, a stat that they had in a report that said that no function had been more impacted uh, as had marketing um, since the beginning of COVID. Of all the corporate, like across the board, marketing the most. And my theory on this is um, I think a lot of people historically, maybe not the, the hundred people in my group who are data scientists and uh, performance marketers and digital marketers, but the other three quarters probably cho- chose marketing because they, they did want to be in a creative profession. And it doesn't mean they are, doesn't necessarily mean they're extroverts, but there is some correlation between choosing a creative science as your profession and the joy that you get when you collaborate. And um, there, there is no joy and no proper collaboration that comes from um, Zoom calls. 
And and if I, it doesn't mean that I expect people to come back into the office. I want to be really clear. I want the best people to come work on my team. And so whatever is going to be the best way for them to work is what I will endeavor to support because I will not lose the best talent if the best talent doesn't want to come into the office every day. That said, there is a tedium that comes with staring at your screen all day that is not there when you are walking between meetings and having a laugh. And I was, I was uh, on a hybrid call today and I was the one on the screen and everybody else was in a room and they were laughing and it, during the meeting. You would never find that on a Zoom call where people were sort of teasing each other all throughout the meeting. They might at the beginning and they might at the end, but then in the core part, it's all business. It's joyless. So I, I, I feel like people enjoy work less than they did. And I believe that it's around this notion of tedium. Oh, I think that's our reality, right? Laura, this has been a great chat. You're very inspiring. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, to recap this wide-ranging episode, we affirmed once again that simply being creative isn't enough in marketing anymore. Companies need to find and hire creative and analytical marketers. But those changes don't have to be a massive overhaul. The answer is to make a series of smaller changes within your company to help everyone work in an agile mode and to ensure everyone adopts a more collaborative spirit. Livia from Deloitte Toronto spoke beautifully about this. Collaboration will be absolutely key to building a creative engine that moves at the speed of culture. We learned how to design a more agile team structure and to rethink influencer strategies. Today, influencers who must be authentic and natural to the brand, are able to meet customers in the moments that matter in ways marketers were not able to do in the past. And finally, the last key in building this creative engine will be integrating specially skilled people wherever they live to fill the skills gap. At the end of the day, for the CMO, it's less about organizational redesigns and boxes and dotted lines and more about a cultural shift one that reshapes how marketers work toward common goals that unlock creative ideas that grow brands. I hope you enjoyed part one of our series on Deloitte's global marketing trends. Join us next time for part two, where we delve into how brands are designing a human-first data experience and supercharging customer service with AI.